Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey, everybody. I'm so glad you're with us, as I always am glad you're with us. And, you know, I hear, by the way, that this has been really helpful for a lot of couples, a lot of people in recovery, this podcast. And I am so grateful. You know, anything that we can give away, that I can give away to support you guys, you know, to help you in your healing. I know I had to go through it. And, you know, I'm so blessed to be able to offer this to you. So, you know, thank you for listening and being here. So today I have a guest who I really enjoy, a colleague and an author. Her name is Kelly Ibarra, and I want to tell you a little bit about her. Kelly is a licensed professional counselor, a certified sex addiction therapist, a a trauma professional, a counselor, an author. Boy, you do a lot of stuff, Kelly. She's supervisor for the limited licensed professional counselors and a trained SAFE, S-A-F-E, which means somatic and attachment focused EMDR clinician. Kelly lives and works out of Grand Rapids, Michigan, and she specializes in working with individuals, working with compulsive sexual behavior and complex partner betrayal related to early childhood wounds and affair recovery. Welcome, Kelly. Thank you, Dr. Rob. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, well, I've known about your work for a long time, and I kind of waited for this book that you just wrote because I thought, this is how couples can find their way to healing. And and we don't always talk about this stuff. We often talk about the problem rather than the solution. So Kelly, what did you name this book? Because I think I love your title. Yeah, the name of the book is Deeply Troubled, Radically Forgiven, a memoir about rebuilding unforgiveness after complex sexual betrayal. And the title is very intentional. I wanted to use the word deeply troubled rather than broken. It was a back and forth that I went through for quite some time. This is personal as well as professional because I didn't I did not know that. So folks, I just think just to say it before Kelly goes on that I know for me and the people I work with to have someone who's been through this experience who knows what that's like, they're writing from a completely different perspective than some academic. And so that's really thrilling. I mean, I'm sorry you went through that, but on the other hand, I know that your word matters in ways that it might not. So please continue. I'm sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say that I don't feel like our relationship has been broken because of this process. I think we've been deeply troubled. We've gone through some really deep waters. But I definitely think that despite the hardships I never would have asked for, prayed for, wished for, our relationship came out better because of it. How long, I mean, just for you, since you bring that up, and I don't want to ask too many personal questions, but how long was the process between 
oh my God, we're really in trouble to, I think we've got this and we're going to move on. Like how long did that take? No, I appreciate that question and ask as personal as you want. You know, this book does not sugarcoat anything. It's a mixture between clinical knowledge and personal experience. I wanted people to see a face behind maybe why people go into this field and serve this community. But my story is a little bit more on the severe end. Um, My husband deeply struggled with level three acting out behavior. So it was very pervasive. I don't know that everyone knows what that means. So why don't you tell them what that means? Yeah. So Patrick Harnes, the leader in this field, um, created three different tiers of acting out behavior. Level one are probably more of those like uh, low level acting out behaviors, not a lot of consequences or harm necessarily to other people. So that's like compulsive masturbation or looking at too much porn or, or I guess maybe uh, going to uh, like strip clubs or stuff like that. Yeah. And and like a level two be more like chronic objectification to the point where maybe I'm doing things that aren't necessarily consensual. They're starting to have like this victim mentality or someone's being harmed by the behavior. But a level three is definitely harm to somebody else, definitely a victim. And oftentimes the people who are engaging in those behaviors are victims themselves, which is, you know, just really sad because we look at the offended, like offended party, but we don't look at the person that's also probably gone through their own um, harm and trauma to get to a point where they were engaging in those behaviors. It's interesting that you say that because as a sex addict myself, you know, I know, and the clients I work with, we can be in a room of a hundred people and we can, because of our own trauma and sort of our intuition, we can scan the room and find that person emotionally who's going to respond to us. So it is a connection like that, but you're not aware of it. You just aware that someone came up to you and was being nice, but inside of ourselves, we kind of know. And that was kind of our story, Dr. Rab. I mean, it, it was really trauma bonding, connecting over like pain, things that we've gone through, maybe not explicitly saying like, hey, here's my story and here's mine, but pain knows pain. And, and I think that sometimes when you talk to certain people, you can get a feel, right, for maybe what someone's gone through. And then maybe my story isn't so crazy. Maybe my story isn't so off the charts. Oh, like no. you speak the same language as me. So Kelly, you know, you were saying that you've been through this yourself and, you know, that's always touching to the people who work with us because they have, they know that you have an understanding that's at a deeper level than most folks who are simply a therapist or somebody who did some research or how bad was it for you and your husband? What was doing that was, you know, so difficult? My husband had a very significant trauma history that eventually morphed into all kinds of behaviors left untreated over the years. And so by the time that I had met him, he had been engaged in sexually acting out behavior for at least 20 years. I mean, it's been a long process in different capacities. And so in our story, my husband never even identified as having sexual issues. Like they were tagged as normal. This is just what men do. So In the end, it took about eight years before my husband established any kind of consistent pattern of recovery. Well, let me go back. And I'm really, you know, this isn't about, you know, a whole discussion of your relationship, but I think it gives a great background for the people who are listening. So, you know, in a general way. So are you saying that, I don't know how long you, how long have you been married? I mean, that's helpful. So we were dating three years um, before we got married. And then May 31st, let me calculate 14, 15. We'll be seven years married. So this was going on when you were dating. I mean, you didn't know anything about this. Yeah, I found out around six months into our relationship. So to understand kind of how we got there, I think partners often want to know, like, how did 
how did I miss it? Like, how did I figure this out? Like, what what's our story? And so for me, my husband presented as very emotionally in tune. He didn't come off like with these addictive features of manipulation or deceit or gaslighting. Like he was over and above. Like he spoke to my emotional wounds and attachment ruptures in a way that nobody else could. And in that process, there was a lot of like around three months in the relationship, like a shift where once like we were really close and connected, he started to get controlling and it started small and kind of added up. So he would say things like, you shouldn't wear that outfit. You're, you're too exposed on front and you need to go to church and you need to start believing in God. Even though up to that point, like God was not a part of my life. I didn't believe at that moment. There were like all these mandates and if I didn't comply, he would just leave. And you weren't married at that point, right? No, nope. We had been together, like I said, around three months when I started to pick up on signs. So now you're saying you did see some clues, but I bet you when you're young and in your love and someone's really intimate with you, you'd kind of overlook that. You weren't thinking that's the problem. Yeah. I was 21 when I met my husband. Like It was my first serious relationship. And so I didn't know what I didn't know. And I was just hoping that like this was the real thing. And this, like even though these gestures seemed really grand, Like it kind of felt like the storybook and the movies you watched. And that was a longing in my heart based on the trauma that I endured as a kid and the attachment issues that I had coming into a relationship. Can you, um, can you explain attachment issues? Cause I don't know that everyone understands exactly what that means. Yeah. So I work with a lot of clients from different backgrounds, but I usually formulate things from the standpoint of an attachment lens, meaning that there's been distress or harmful experiences in their early childhood or even adolescent years. I think sometimes before they even remember, right? Correct. I mean, there's that transgenerational trauma, the wounds that happen before you're even born sometimes Mm -hmm. with the chemical dumps that people get when they're pregnant, right? From the stress that they're enduring. And, And so those kind of things impact like our relationships and the things that we find rewarding and the things that we find attractive. And just like Patrick Carnes says, like I totally fell for intensity as intimacy. Intensity as intimacy. By the way, just to say that, um, you know, addicts think they're being in, they, they think they're looking for intimacy, but they're really looking to escape through intensity. And that's uh, a road they go down without understanding. It's never going to lead to what they really want. I just want to explain that piece. And I did have another question for you. You, you were back, Adam. We didn't finish it. You know, the fact that some spouses say to themselves, why didn't I see this? Why didn't I know? So you're kind of tying all that together. Can you say more? I think I wanted to believe that what I saw was real. It felt real. It, it felt like he was very invested. But as time went on, you know, around six months, I started to pick up on things like he would start to get ready when I would go to grad school and he was working from home. So there was no real reason. He would try um, and say he was going to pick me up after like school and he wouldn't show up until hours later. Like I couldn't reach him by the phone. His phone was always dying. So it was these weird things that I just started to get this like feeling in my stomach that something wasn't adding up. And it wasn't long after that, that I had this rush come over me one night and went over to his place. I had a key and I was free to come and go as I pleased. And I checked his computer, which is something I had never done, never had like a feeling to do those things. But you had this feeling in your gut, like just something isn't right. Yeah. And yet his words spoke like a melody that didn't match like what I was seeing. And so it felt crazy making, like it felt like something is so off here And I feel crazy for even thinking that something's off here. 
And this is the kind of doubt that spouses go through. I'm feeling one thing and I really don't want it, but my intellect says something's not right. And that's the battle, right? I love, but I'm confused kind of thing. Yeah. But as soon as I went in and I looked, like there was no hiding. Like it was everywhere. Prostitutes, websites, hidden messages, dating profiles, false names. Like it was all there. And I remember calling him and just kind of confronting him. And I remember his response to this day, which was something like, can I call you back? I'm with friends right now. (laughs) And so it's not only for partners, right? The trauma that they endure, but for most individuals that are struggling with recovery, they're not good initially, right? With empathy and emotional attunement and accountability and responsibility. Well, if they were, they wouldn't do the things they do. Right. That relational betrayal, which oftentimes partners feel is worse. <laughs> well, the breaking of trust, it feels worse than the, than the betrayal of sexual acting out. Yeah. And not only for like the things that have been done that they didn't know about, but the idea that these things could happen again. And, and you don't know where the landmines are. You don't know when it's going to happen. Like I had a client tell me once, it feels like a game of peekaboo that you never asked to play. Like they just kind of hide and pop out at you and it's just very unpredicted. And you can't see it. You can't smell it like alcohol in the breath or, you know, drive necessarily down the street to a bar. It, it's a lot more covert. Well, and then you can feel like you're crazy. Again, when someone feels loving and seems kind and you kind of were going to go with that. But but you found something on the computer and what happened? Well, after that night, like it was a lot of ups and downs for those following years. But we started with the conversation around counseling, which even then, you know, I talk about that in my book, like for a partner, it's common sense. Like you're struggling, like let's address it, um, take the next step. And he wanted nothing to do with that. Like I was crazy for even considering asking him that question. So you get gaslighted, which means you're told there's something wrong with you for wanting to do something that feels very natural, which is get some help. Right, right. And so, I mean, he wouldn't settle for counseling. So he started with 12 step and that didn't go well. There was always a reason or an excuse why I couldn't be there or I'm not like them. So when you say he started with 12 step, are you say that he realized there was some kind of problem or at least he realized he needed to appease you in some way? Oh, no. That took around six months for him to even walk into. And even then, that was like a one-time thing. (laughs) So it took years before he finally even walked into a counselor's office. And you can imagine like the acting out that still continued in different capacities, um, still discovering, still trying to figure out what are we doing? Like, how do I deal with this? Because he, even though he eventually got to a place where he's like, okay, I have a problem, it didn't mean that he was ready to suit up and jump out of the plane. And you were so young. I mean, we're not talking about a woman who has a lot of experience with dating and relationships and she's in her 30s and she, you were, well, what I consider now a child in your early 20s, you know? And so how could you know? How would you know? And I think that's what made it worse, Dr. Rob, is my husband's 10 years older than me. So by the time I met him, he's 31, 32, like he's had life experience, you know, and I felt like, why am I trying to teach somebody about accountability and responsibility? This isn't my role. Like you should know by now, which felt even worse. So without going into real detail, what happened? I mean, you went through something and you got out the other side. Did you ever think it would get better? Did you have hope? And then was your hope dashed? Because I think a lot of partners go through, oh, this is going to be good. He's going to counseling. He's working on things. But they don't realize it's more to shut you up or more to just look like they're doing something rather than they're really invested, as you said. Yeah. 
Well, there were four primary reasons why I stayed, especially for so long. The first one is I really believed in my partner. I didn't necessarily believe the words he was saying. I believed in the man that was underneath. And that made it really hard to leave because I saw the good. I understood the pain that brought him to this place. And I could detach enough to realize that in in some capacity, this wasn't really my fault. And that he did care for me, but he didn't love himself. The second reason that I chose to stay is I really believed in recovery and change. At the time, I was going to school for becoming a therapist. And so I believe no matter what the condition, like there was hope. The third one was I was anchored in God's promises. At this point, it came to a standstill where I started to believe in a higher power for myself. So you found you found comfort in spirituality and a connection there, despite the fact your husband shoved you in that direction. Now it did have meaning to you. Now it was important to you. Absolutely. Um, for my own reasons, not to keep him. And, and I believe that like he could fix this. Nothing was too big. Nothing was too small. I, when you say he, you mean your higher power or do you mean your husband? Correct. Higher power. That your prayer, your beliefs, your hope, would, and, and there's something on your side and this is going to be okay. Yeah. And, and lastly, if I'm being quite honest, I think just from my own experiences and what I had gone through prior to meeting my husband, I had really poor self-esteem and I was deeply attached. And so I want to bring something up because I think it's important. A lot of partners often ask, like, how did I end up in a relationship like this? And typically I notice that there's you know two kinds of things that I'm seeing in my practice. One, there's people who come from really secure bases, like they're very forgiving, very accommodating. Like if something happens, I am super reflective and empathetic and I will take that on and I will be your like a warrior, right? And so for them, they miss it because they're just doing what they do. Like they just love to love. And in some ways, I think the addict takes advantage of that. You know, I have to mention prodependence because the whole idea that there's something wrong with a spouse for loving or staying or, you know, that's what I'm pushing back against. And you're a perfect example of it because you're saying, I stayed because I saw the hope in him. I saw the possibility for us to, I saw him as he might be. And I wasn't fooling myself. I saw that whether we'd get there or not is a different story. Yeah. The second reason or the second thing that I see in my practice is that people end up in relationships and loving people that struggle with addiction potentially because of their wounds of omission and commission, the things that they needed that they didn't get and the things that should have never have happened to them. We call that big T, like big traumatic events that possibly happened, maybe um, sexual abuse or emotional abuse. Or, or maybe dad was having an affair and mom was just trying to get through it. So they witnessed this before or something like that. Yeah, household dysfunction, right? But then there's these little key issues where maybe like I came home every day and mom and dad weren't there for me, right? Or maybe I came home and I didn't know like what was for dinner. Like there's just so many different things that lead us right into these places seeking comfort, maybe from people that aren't necessarily comforting. <laughs> well, I think part of what we learn if, if that works for you is that when you go through difficult circumstances growing up, that becomes what you're used to. And so it's interesting because you said, and I thought it was, you know, perfect being a therapist here. You said, you know, I would sit outside graduate school waiting for my husband to pick me up and hours would go by and he didn't. And then you said, I'd come home and maybe no one was there. I didn't know where. So this idea that you were comfortable on some level from an early age with, well, they may not show up. They may be late. That is part of it. Part of the reason you don't see what might be right in front of someone who hasn't gone through all that. Absolutely. And the other side to that, right, is if I never really had 
ongoing secure base attachments, then when I did experience those, when I did have them, they seemed like novelty, which was a threat. Oh, so this is what I hear from a lot of women is in a, in a way, like the really stable guys, the kind I wanted to be with, they were boring. Correct. They weren't interesting. They didn't turn my key. And, you know, the adverse childhood experience study that was done in the 90s really backs this up, you know, in terms of a trauma model, which I think a lot of partners relate to, no matter what we've been through, like a lot of things that happen to us as kids and even as teenagers affect the way that we see relationships and experiences as adults. And this was you. And this was me. And so when I met Chris, I was in the one of the worst spaces of my life. I had just found out that I had herpes. I was pursuing all kinds of disconnected relationships and really embracing hookup culture and doing things that were not healthy or good because I was in pain and because I didn't know how to manage that pain. And so I met him. He was very comforting and loving and soothing and reassuring. And going back to like my negative self-esteem is one of the reasons I stayed. I felt like nobody else would love me. Nobody else would accept me. Like this would be my best chance at success. Which sadly is how abuse survivors feel. Someone's hitting you and you say, well, I guess this is all I deserve. So when he wouldn't pick me up after school or I'd come home to an empty house, I was like, well, this kind of feels normal to me. Even though I knew, you know, in my heart, like this isn't okay. You know, I just want to follow up on something you said also, which is when you start to open your heart to someone and you've had some of that history, for the first time you feel like, oh. Now here's someone here who will, will meet my needs and will, and it's an overwhelming feeling of, ah, finally I'm getting this. And so sometimes you don't fully see the person because you're so kind of, you're, you have that, all of the feelings that didn't get met from the past. Now they're lying in this person and they're offering the potential of giving that to you. So it's very confusing. And I really want to push back against spouses who say, I didn't know. Why didn't I see what's wrong with me? Because you wouldn't see, and you wouldn't understand, and you never had a chance on some level. So I want to hear more. Um, because I want to get to the book too, because you have written a radical book and, and it's a lot about forgiveness, which I think is one of the most difficult things for, you know, could I ever forgive this? So I don't want to ask much more personal, but how did you get from there to here? Was it all about him and the work that he did and proved himself to you? Or was there part that you did? Because a lot of spouses say, well, I did, there's nothing wrong with me. Why do I have to work on me? So how do you look at that? Or what was your experience? Yeah, no, it's definitely, I mean, even in my book, I approach this as like an integrated system, right? There's three different tiers, his recovery, my recovery, and the coupleship. And so each of those had to play a role, especially his and mine, at least in our story, before we could ever have a chance at rebuilding as a couple. And so for my personal recovery, obviously that involved a lot of therapy, but it also stepped outside of my relationship with Chris and really focused more on my own attachment history my own needs as an individual. Like I had never taken the time to just figure out what it is that I needed and even think that I was worth that. And so it took a long time. And I remember even my own EMDR, like I just kept blocking, block, block, block. I feel nothing. I get nothing. Like it took a long time for me to get to a place where I could feel. And even now that's, that's a difficult space for me. Well, if you grow up in a broken environment, you would learn to not feel. You would learn to not look at things because you have to survive. So you had to reconnect the past to the present and become alive in some ways with an integration of all those pieces. Yeah. And part of doing that, Dr. Rob, is learning to tell your story. I think for so many partners, right, at least 
I don't know. I guess we go both ways on this. You know, some people are angry and we just want to blur it out. Other people are very reserved and they don't want to share. They don't want to talk about it. There's just so much shame and so many people trying to tell you what to do that you just go mute. And honestly, what we know about trauma, right, is that that language part of our brain shuts down when we're highly activated. And if you're living in constant stress, constant unpredictability, you really don't know like how to formulate what is happening in you. And so being able to do that and figuring out how to share what's happened to me was super critical in my story of healing. Hey there. I sure hope you're enjoying this sex, love, and addiction podcast. Before we continue, I'd like to remind you that if you or someone you know or love needs treatment for sex addiction, porn addiction, or co-occurring drug problems, Seeking Integrity can help. For more information, please visit our website at www.seekingintegrity.com. That's seekingintegrity.com. Or call us at 747-234-4325. Not to move away from you, but I I have some questions that I think are really important for your book. And by the way, will you say the name again? I know that we're not on radio, so they will hear it. You know, we don't have to repeat it a bunch of times, but I love the title. Can you just mention it again? Yes. Deeply Troubled, Radically Forgiven, a memoir about rebuilding and forgiveness after complex sexual betrayal. You're right about healing. I mean, that's what the book is about. So first of all, I guess I got to ask before we get to the relationship, what do you think makes a partner heal? Is that kind of what you're talking about earlier, like looking at yourself and understanding, putting your pieces together from the past and the present? Is that what you mean? Yeah, I think learning how to find our our voice again as partners is very crucial. Talking about what's happened to us, not that, you know, that's easy, but I think a lot of partners struggle with doing so because they they feel like it's not going to make it better, right? Like me talking about it is just me reliving it. But they don't realize that part of doing that, at least doing that with a therapist really well, is learning how to desensitize and integrate some of those traumatic things that have happened to you just from a narrative standpoint. And so there's telling your story, but there's also, I think, a lot of psychoeducation that helps partners heal, not necessarily about things wrong with them, right? Like right. that's the right. wrong approach here. But what is sexual addiction? Versus when somebody's trying to use that to kind of cover like multiple affairs. Mm-hmm. And what is that impaired thinking that maybe you observe? Right. So, what does it help a partner heal? I think there's been so much gaslighting. To be able to tell a partner like some common signs and symptoms of how this manifests is very healing. So, again, just kind of on that educational standpoint, as well as kind of normalizing what's happening in their brain when they go into flight mode. And it's like 30, 30 miles an hour to 100 miles an hour, all in like two minutes to really help them get that like this is common, like this is a this is okay given what you've been through, even if it looks messy and your partner does not understand you. Like this is what your brain does. I often tell spouses, sadly, that crazy is your new normal and you really need to understand that because partners will say, what's wrong with me? I can't think clearly or I feel overwhelmed with the silliest things. And they don't realize that they're struggling with something so major that just getting out of their emotional life to think clearly is really a challenge. So I got to move forward because I really want to understand, and this is always important, what makes the rebuilding of a partnership so difficult? I mean, to me, you know, it seems obvious that there's been cheating and someone is hurt and 
and they don't want to forgive or they don't trust. So you wrote about this. So what are you thinking in terms of that? I think there's three different areas to consider. So from a couple standpoint, right, to be able to rebuild intimacy and courtship and sexuality again with parameters that feel safe and inviting is crucial. And it happens at different stages, right? Like we don't come to recovery, like they say, on the same day. So while one person might be working their recovery and they're ready to kind of reintegrate, the other person is still like flinching every time you go and give them a hug. So of course, sex is not going to be a safe place. Or if I'm in the bedroom and I'm asking like, are you thinking of so-and-so? And, you know, asking those specific questions or diving into past acting out, we're probably not ready. So that's a really hard space for partners and individuals co- recovering from sexual acting out behavior. One of the things I say to partners, because sometimes they do want to try to restore the relationship through sex, like if that's what he or she wanted, then I'll just be better at it and do more of it, But or they avoid. But my comment about that is, why would you be sexual with someone you don't trust? And you don't trust them then. So your heart, you have to follow your heart and what you feel. Also in this like coupleship realm, you know, this idea of courtship, I think this is important to note because a lot of times when the individuals in recovery, especially early recovery, they're learning to dance for the first time, right? I I tell partners, it's like they're speaking in a different accent. They don't quite understand how to do this. And so I say that respectfully, but just saying in a card, I love you and I'm so happy we're together or I'm thankful for you. Well, a partner's heard that a million times and you were still acting out. So that can be triggering for them and they still aren't getting it. And the partner can feel like, wow, like I don't even know what I'm doing here because you're not seeing the other lens of things. And they struggle to even articulate that to them so that they can hear it. So at both ends, the rebuilding is difficult. And yet you're talking about in your book and in your own life that you can get couples to a place of commitment and healing and maybe even, I hate to say this word, forgiveness. So what are the essential elements of a couple's rebuilding after the repair, you know, after the, the, the addict has stopped acting out and they've started being accountable and they're being more real? And how does the couple rebuild? I think one of the first things that they really have to think about is how is our relationship going to look in comparison to where it's been? I think a lot of couples have shame. And when we get defeated or even when we're hearing each other's pain in this process, I want a clean slate. I want to run away. I want to make it better. Like you're my biggest trigger. (laughs) But the reality is relationships can be very fulfilling even after sexual betrayal and sexual trauma if we learn to meet each other's needs as they appear. And so part of that process is really redesigning your relationship with boundaries that feel safe. Even if you might not want Uh, a flip phone, if your wife is feeling like this is the only way I'm ever going to trust you outside of larger scale behaviors, like, can you meet me here? It's by invitation, but these are the compromises and choices we have to make. And also understand that this is never going to look like a relationship without sexual addiction. And that is deep. That is really hard work, I think, for both people in the relationship. Well, in a very simplistic and not emotional way, you know, now you have, you married someone who has diabetes and now they have to take their sugar and they have to take pills or they have to inject themselves. And that just wasn't what you expected that they would have a chronic long-term problem that you're going to be dealing with throughout the marriage. And there it is. Yeah. You think about things differently. I mean, I know like walking into a restaurant, sometimes clients think about, all right, you never sit facing the door. Like it's just going to create tension, even if there's not a conflict. 
like just avoid it. Like this isn't something that's worth fighting for. Like really pick your battles. So I think I wrote Out of the Doghouse for a reason. And it was to tell men what they need to do to be able to leave a partner feeling valued and appreciated and understood because and to lead toward healing because they often don't know. Sometimes they just need to do concrete things, like you said. Like, Do you think a partner can ever come to the place where they truly believe that this has stopped? Or do you think it'll always be in the back of their mind? A lot of times what I tell clients that I work with is you might start out very fierce. You're going to have a ton of different things that you feel like you need. Maybe you're checking things, even though you know it might not be healthy for you. But as time goes on, you know, if the relationship is healthy and you're starting to see like he's becoming or she's becoming more transparent on their own without you questioning, they're bringing up stuff about their day, even outside of recovery work, like as they start to be more present and engaged in their life, those behaviors that you're engaging in right now might not be so imperative. And so I think it's sometimes, Dr. Rob, a day-to-day experience. It's not black and white. And I think that's what makes this process so hard is it's not one way to freedom. There's so many different things to consider as you're watching somebody heal, as you're healing, that you really have to be flexible and adapt to maybe what your reality is showing. But yes, I think you can reestablish trust or I wouldn't be here, you know, personally or professionally. It's just, it looks different than that agape trust that's unconditional and there's no reason to doubt you. So you talked about repicturing the relationship, revisualizing the relationship. You talked about partners healing. You talked about the partner beginning to see that the actions are being taken, not just the words, which is reassuring. And yet, are those the essential elements to couples healing or, or do we miss a piece or two? I think they're part of it, right? It's not like a short answer here. I think a lot of times partners and their beloveds need to get on the same page when it comes to recovery behaviors. Like I've already mentioned, intimacy and sex. Communication is a huge thing. And being able to speak to our primary emotions and not getting lost in our secondary emotions. Can you explain primary versus secondary? I'm not sure. Yeah. So when I start to detect a threat as a partner, typically what I see is shutdown or anger, right? In a lot of my um, clients. But if I can connect to what's happening in me that's drawing me to that space and be able to approach my beloved and say something like, you know, I really want to withdraw right now. I'm super upset because when you just said that, it reminded me of that, you know, time where you used to gaslight me and just makes me want to run away, but I feel like I can't. Like if I can speak to what's underneath, and not get lost in my biological response of my amygdala, right? Like I might have a chance at creating connection with my partner in an area that used to be very vulnerable and and triggering. And that can create a different experience moving forward, especially when it comes to trust. Well, when your partner says, why are you upset? And why, what's the big deal? And when are you going to get over it? That's not the road to your feeling safe and like it's going the way you want, but when you're, or hope for, But when your partner says, you know, I didn't do that tonight, but I completely understand how you're feeling and I know what you've been through and I'm so sorry, you know, I'm getting better, but I know you might not even believe that. The work can't be about, well, you're still defending yourself. You're telling me that you didn't do it or you didn't mean it or that's not it. It's really saying, wow, I hurt you like empathy. You know, I really get that I hurt you and I don't have to defend myself because I screwed up. We already know that. But can I understand what you've been through? So many addicts I work with say, I get it. I feel awful. I hate myself. I'm an awful person. I, you know, I can't, which is their shame. But that's kind of selfish because what they're not saying is, 
I can understand your pain and what you're going through and what I put you through. And I think that's the beginning of the kind of couples healing you're talking about. Yeah. Being more present for both sides of what each other have experienced in this. Like even as a partner, we can sit in that space and be like, I know that it'd be easier, you know, that you want to run away. Like that would be the quickest solution. And that's probably what you've done in a lot of areas of your life. And I get that that's worked to some extent. And that's why that's happened for so many years. But I really want you to stay. Because what I've noticed too, you know, in that mutual kind of give and take is there's attachment issues for the individual struggling with the addiction too, right? And I don't trust you. I don't trust people for my needs, my sexual needs, my emotional needs. And there's experiences that brought me to that space. But if you can nurture me back, even when I'm all messy, just like you might get angry, but I might want to run away. Like if we can meet each other there. That's the change for healing. That's one of the most crucial ingredients, I think, is not to put either person in a perceived position of authority or power, that my pain's greater than your pain, and you're here to meet that. Well, you're really talking about Stan, Stan Tatkins, Dr. Stan Tatkins' work, which is about m- what we call mutual self-regulation. I recognize when you're upset, and I know how to step in and help, and you recognize when I'm upset, and even though you might be having all kinds of feelings, you, you know how to step in and help me, and we learn that together, so we create a system of mutual validation support. We're not, we're not different. I mean, we're not better than the other, as you said, but Each of us plays a part in supporting and loving the other in a way that you understand what they need, how to support them. So I got to move to, you know, really, I think the most difficult part, which is you have children, right? I do. Everyone I work with, there's no question that their children are affected by this, whether they're two or nine, no matter how, how hard mom works. She's still on some level anxious, fearful, what's going on? You know, there's that level of fear in her that the kids pick up. So how do you think the healing affected your kids? Yeah, I I often view this in three different areas, like in utero, right? Like I was pregnant when things really got bad with my husband. And so there there are changes that happened in my own body that predispositioned my daughter before she even came into the world. And then there was what happened when she was born, kind of living in that addictive system, that household dysfunction. And then there's some antidotes that we've learned along the way. And so I mentioned earlier about how stress impacts like a baby. And if your mom was pregnant and she had a ton of stress in her life, like that changed your, you know, DNA. And then you're already at, say, a certain scale every single day. And then trauma happens. Now we're raising the bar. And now your daughter. So it kind of has this ripple effect in that way, which affects two things like we know help with attachment and bonding, lactation for breastfeeding, like all these different areas that I think women struggle with if if they're facing trauma. Once your child's born, you know, things that I noticed just in my own personal child, she had a lot of digestive issues that had no medical diagnosis. Like we would go to so many doctors, she couldn't gain weight, she wasn't growing. And it was because like, even though she didn't understand necessarily what was happening, When you're screaming at each other, when you're up all night, like in these quarrels, I mean, your kids don't know how to deal with that, especially a baby. And that stays with them. And so the other thing I see too with kids is it changes their anxiety levels and the way that they calm down. And so my daughter is very sensitive. She's very hypervigilant. Like she'll notice the littlest things and she needs a lot of coaching to just like regulate again. And I'm hoping over time that we can undo, right? Like those early stages, like most parents, but like it does set a precedent that way. I also notice like messages, like self-esteem that I hear from even my other clients. 
I'm bad. You don't love me. It's my fault. That's why my mommy and daddy are arguing or my mommy's like, there's so many different things that kids retain without you really knowing. And you can really see that maybe in their drawings. You can see that in the words that they use. And I know my daughter, even at a young age, personally, was very paying attention because I would self-soothe by drinking a ton of alcohol when I was in the early stages of this. And she would always say, that's mommy's juice. I want my juice. So kids know, you know, and it affects like so much more than I think we're even cognizant of. It's not always visible. I mean, your anxiety may not be visible, but they feel it. Yeah. And so when it, you know, there's a couple of things that I, I recommend typically with the couples that I work with that have kids. One, don't argue in front of them. <laughs> don't fight, right? Like if you need to have a crucial argument, get a babysitter, like wait until they're asleep, go outside. Like there were stages, Dr. Rob, where we would have to literally sit outside because if we weren't public, we're going to rip each other's heads off, right? Like, cause there's just so much emotion there and that's just raw honesty, but also helping kids to process maybe what they're hearing by using kid-friendly language. Like mommy and daddy forgot to be friends today. And you're right. This isn't how we talk to people. That's so, well, what you're saying is they have to be validated. You can't just say, well, you know, they'll get over this or there's kids or, you know, people fight. You have to go back to them and, and validate their reality, which is yes, mom and dad are struggling, but it's not about you and we love you and we'll never leave you and all that stuff. But you want to, I was just talking to a couple who was saying like the husband is going to seek integrity is on his way to treatment. And the question was, well, how do we tell our kids? You know, and my answer is don't ever tell your kids about your sex life because that's not something they never need to know about. But you do need to say, dad's struggling. We're having a hard time. We love you. But you know, that you, you got to validate their feeling, not necessarily every fact. By the way, I, I would imagine you agree that, that knowing about your parents' sex life is really no, nothing you really ever want to know about or need to know about. And the details of why they're struggling is not nearly as important as their validation that you are struggling. Yeah, I think kids really need to know that like their gut instincts are valid. Like their feelings are taken into account. Like what they're witnessing and observing like is real. And more than anything, they want that safety and stability that it's going to be okay. Well, they deserve it. Absolutely, right? Like just to know that like my life's not going to be significantly different because mommy and daddy are fighting. And I mean, obviously in different capacities, life situations can look different. But like moving out or divorce or therapeutic separations, which obviously affects kids in different ways. But just knowing like you guys will still be there for me and I didn't cause this, I think is really crucial. Well, children are supposed to be the center of our lives. That's what they really need. And when we go off into some of the places we go as couples, this is how we repeat the losses that we experienced when we were young. And I think most parents really need to be reminded that no matter how bad things are, your children have to be the primary focus in your life. You know, you're adults, you'll work this out, but their, their, their early evolution is everything. And you can't miss out on that because then they end up like us with struggles and challenges. I, I do want to ask you, we're going to have to finish in a few minutes. And Kelly, you're an awesome guest. I mean, you're so articulate, so aware. Really, I, I've had a lot of partners talk and I got to say, you know, I'm glad you wrote the book because I can hear your voice right now and I'm sure it's a beautiful thing. A lot of the people who are listening may never get to therapy. They may not be able to afford it. They may not have the resources. You know, we're fortunate. We're professionals. We can do, and actually we have to do that as part of our work. So we know our own problems. I also know that you've had a lot of experiences in support groups and 12-step recovery. And do you think somebody can find healing or a couple can find healing if they don't have the resources or the ability to see a therapist for a year? 
I do. I mean, in our story, that was the case, right? Like we were young. We didn't see a therapist for almost like that whole first year. And we're still together 10 years later. So I do think it's possible, but you need support somewhere. And so there's a lot of great resources. I think, especially today, maybe compared to 10 years ago, a lot of free ones too. Like there's books out there, there's podcasts, there's groups that you could just join in. And churches too. I mean, even though they might not fully digest sexual addiction, like from a pornography and betrayal standpoint in that lens, there's a lot of free groups around that. So, I mean, there's resources. It's just having somebody, I think, to really mentor you through it is the crucial part. Because left to our own devices, if we're hurting, chances are we're not going to make the best choices. So we need someone to guide us. Well, also what you're talking about, and we need to stop in a minute, I, I think you kind of said this earlier, talking about therapy, is you need someone to witness your pain, to witness what you've been through, and to, you know, and that doesn't have to be a therapist. That can be people who've been through what you're going through. That's why the support groups are so helpful. Let me ask this one question, last question, Kelly, and I could talk to you all day, but I often hear spouses on this point say, I don't want to go to a support group. I didn't do anything wrong. You know, I'm the one who should be, you know, supported by my husband or by my family. Or why do I have to turn to some group? And I've heard this, they're just a bunch of whiny women or men, or they are talking about all these problems in their life. And, you know, their husband had a slip, their husband is struggling, and I don't want to be in a group of women like that. And of course I say to them, but this is your reality. You are that person. But what do you say to the spouse that says, I I just, I don't need to go someplace. He needs to go someplace or she needs to go someplace. I just need peace of mind. What do you say to them? Because we know it is a healing process. I think that's a process that we have to be patient with and, and kind of work at someone's pace. I have a lot of partners that tell me, everybody wants me to hurry up and heal. Like I'm the one that's, you know, resting on fixing it. Like if I could just do my part, then everything would be fine. And the reality is I don't want to reinforce that. So I do give some window and comfort for them to make their own empowered decision. But the reality is even best case, if your partner gets sober, the barrier here is that relational betrayal. It doesn't mean that they're going to be accountable to you. Doesn't mean they're going to be empathetic for you. Doesn't mean they're going to listen when you're triggered. So having that group is so crucial because it heals an element that I think takes years for an individual who struggled with sexual acting out to really get and digest. I think for part of it for the women is they're, they've been doubting themselves for so long. And then they look across that room in their own sort of cohort or group like them, and they see another attractive, interesting, intelligent woman and it happened to her too. So, you know, they're not alone. And then they begin to get how much this is not about them. Mm-hmm. By the way, will you come back? Because you know what I want you to talk about? I want you to talk about sex. I want you to actually talk about how a couple can find their way to intimacy and healing in terms of physical interactions. You know, and that may start with a handshake. I don't know. But I, it's another question that couples have so often is how could we ever really be faithfully, lovingly, intimately sexual again? And we don't talk a lot about that. So would you be willing to come and back talk? Because I think you know a few things. Would you be willing to come back and talk about that? Absolutely. I'd be honored to. So Kelly, if people want to reach you, you know, they really hear your voice. You know, obviously your book is fantastic because you were fantastic, truly. But can they drop you a note? Do you have an email? Maybe you do some lectures or stuff online they could connect with. How do they find you? Yeah, the best way to connect with me is probably just my email, which is just my first initial, which is K. And my last name, Ibera at cpcouncil.net. So can you spell Ibera? Because everyone might, I'm going to ask you to spell the whole thing out. Because I know when I hear, I always type the wrong thing and I always do. And it says, this doesn't exist. So can you be, can you just walk us through that? It's K 
I B A R R A at C P C O U N S E L dot net. Thank you, because I totally would have gotten that wrong. And I really want people to be able to reach out to your wisdom. You know, they have kids, they have these struggles, they don't know how to go forward. And you have answers that so many search for, but they don't know how to find. So thank you, Kelly. And by the way, folks, I just want to say, I'm not here to sell books. Kelly isn't here to sell books. We're here to to f- help you find peace of mind and direction. And that is why we write, because we've been there. We understand, and we want to convey our healing to you in the hope that you will heal too. So thank you, Kelly Abar. You're amazing, and I'm so grateful you were here. And thank you. Thank you, Dr. Rob. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our Treatment Center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term, effective, intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.